What is up, wrestling fans? Your host with the most, George McKay. I'm in the building! Episode 45. It's a big deal. I'm here with the panel. You know them, but I'll let them introduce themselves. I'm Steve the Animal Mitchell, everyone. And Michelle Russo, the voice of reason. And today, as we do once a month, we are doing our superstar profiles. Each of us takes a shot at the uh, superstar we want to go more in depth to, want to do the research for, want to look at the good, the bad, the ugly, the honest, the real. Break it down for everyone to have their own opinions on. And as we always do, we are live. So don't forget to hit us up on the speaker chat. If you want to ask your questions, throw out a comment or two, an opinion about something we're going to discuss today. Today's superstar profile is Rabbit Wolverine, Chris Benoit. Steve decided to take this one on because I guess it's a subject that it's a gray area subject. Some want to talk about, some don't want to talk about. There's been hints of documentaries that are out there. There are a few documentaries already out there, but nothing's kind of spanned the whole spiel. And we're going to go right into the whole kit and caboodle of everything today. Absolutely. Um, Chris Benoit is actually really near and dear to my heart, uh, and I really wanted to do this simply because um, his wrestling career um, is is one of those that's like uh, that's in that category of unlike any other. He's in that top five, top six, top ten, if you will, of just oh my god, everything this guy gave to wrestling was everything in his heart that he wanted to give, possibly that he could give to wrestling. Then that part completely gets disregarded in the sense of what transpired on the day that really just quite frankly it just changed the Benoit family forever. Um, that changed however, the landscape of wrestling forever. It was kind of one of those first issues. It really where, did. Where mental health and everything kind of had to come to light because people talk about the concussions, which we'll obviously get into. People yeah. talk about all the stuff he was onto. But borderline, I, I think definitely mental health played a key in the factor of everything that went down. And I'm sure you've, yeah. you've dug some stuff up that would probably prove my point and the point we're all thinking about. But again, it's one of those gray areas that nobody wants to talk about. Yeah, it's an issue that, that even though it's out there, you still don't want to talk about it. And also not really truly covering all the facts. Everybody just really wants to kind of point at uh, this very vague, one-sided argument that is totally blanket statemented when it comes to uh, everybody just wanting to, the, with the, uh, this whole media debacle of going everything and pointing the finger completely at steroids. When it actually, when you, when you really understand all of the facts, you can really move forward with understanding what really transpired to the man, Chris Benoit, when all of this really took place, and the rest of his family, for that matter. Um, and uh, a lot of testimony from a lot of other people. But we'll bring all of that to light a little bit later on. For now, um, what I really want to focus on is just celebrating. Uh, the, this is what it feels more like. It feels really more like a celebration. I put every single bit of my heart and my soul and every single bit of everything I had, as much as what I felt like Chris put into wrestling, I wanted to put this into the research of his life. So, um, the, and in respecting that, there will be no making the list today. There will be no jokes. There will be no anything. We'll try to keep it as honest and as sincere as we possibly can. Yeah, as respectful also. So yeah. for today, yeah. only for today, you get a buy. Chris was was, was all Thank about... You, Chris Benoit. Yeah. <laughs> Chris was all about respect, and when it came to the amount of respect that you will genuinely hear from the story that I am about to tell about his life, you'll really understand that concept that he was just a man that was all about respect. And so therefore, I respectfully wanted to make sure that every bit of detail that went to into his life was respected in that way. Well, let's get into it. Yeah. Um, born May 21st, 1967 in Montreal, Quebec, Canada, Christopher Michael Benoit, son of Michael and Margaret Benoit, 
Had a very fruitful, lengthy, and wildly intense 22-year career working for numerous promotions such as the World Wrestling Federation slash World Wrestling Entertainment, World Wrestling, World Championship Wrestling, Extreme Championship Wrestling, and New Japan Pro Wrestling. Industry journalist Dave Meltzer called him one of the top 10, maybe even the top 5 all-time greats. Benoit held 22 championships between WWF slash WWE, WCW, NW, NJ, NJPW, and ECW. He was a two-time world champion, having been one-time WCW world champion and one-time world heavyweight champion in WWE. He was booked to win a third world championship at a WWE event on the night of his death. Benoit was 12th WWE Triple Crown Champion and the 6th WCW Triple Crown Champion, making him the second of four men in history to achieve both WWE and WCW Triple Crown Champions. For all you wrestling buffs out there, the other three members that contained to that list were Ric Flair, Booker T, and Bret the Hitman Hart. That's a pretty damn elite group, yeah. if I yeah. so myself. He <laughs> is on that list. Three Hall of Famers, plus himself. Yeah. He was the 2004 Royal Rumble winner, joining Shawn Michaels as the only two men to win the Royal Rumble as the number one entrant. He then took his Royal Rumble winning and main evented uh, WrestleMania 20 to win the World Heavyweight Championship from Triple H in 2004. All these accolades, and many more, because there are so many little tidbitty accolades that this, this gentleman picked up along the way that we'll get into as the storyline goes on, but all of those accolades are now, however, a distant second compared to the number one memory that most still talk about today, and when Chris's name is merely mentioned in conversation, it is the entire basis of conversation when it comes to any one of them that I've ever had about a wrestler and a crime supposedly committed that still shakes me and to the core to this very day, and yet excites me at the exact same time to now have a platform to open the floodgates about the day that changed the entire Benoit family forever. We'll get into that a little bit later on. For now, let's explore the life and the career of the greatest, one of the greatest to have ever set foot in a wrestling ring. Let's start from the beginning. During his childhood and the early and in his early adolescence uh, in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, Benoit idolized Tom Dynamite Kid Billington and Brett the Hitman Hart. At 12 years old, Chris attended a, a local wrestling event in which he saw both live for the first time, and those two performers are the ones that truly stuck, stuck out to him above the rest. Chris trained to be a wrestler at the Hart Family Dungeon, receiving education from family patriarch Stu Hart, as well as Bruce Hart. In ring, Benoit emulated both his favorites, and a mix of Dynamite Kid and Bret the Hitman Hart was born, cultivating a perfect balance with high-risk style, as well as truly making the performance look like a fight, not like a dance, which is exactly the way Bret took it every single time. Chris loved Brett's work so much that years later that he would adapt the sharpshooter as his finish, along with, of course, the Crippler Crossface. Let's now take a look at Chris's four years with Stampede Wrestling. Benoit began, which was uh, a career span from 1985 to 1989. Uh, Benoit began his wrestling career in 1985, naturally transitioning from the dungeon to Stu Hart's uh, wrestling promotion, Stampede Wrestling. From the beginning, similarities were very apparent between Dynamite Kid and Benoit. As he, as he adopted many of Dynamite's movesets, such as the headbutt, the diving headbutt, and the snap suplex. The homage was complete when his initial billing was, was billed as Dynamite Chris Benoit. According to Benoit, in his first match, he attempted the diving headbutt before learning how to land it correctly. Benoit absolutely knocked the wind out of himself, and he promptly decided to never use the move again at that point. The first title Benoit ever won was the Stampede British Commonwealth Mid-Heavyweight Championship in 1986 against Gamma Singh. 
During the duration of his tenure in Stampede, he won four international tag team and three more British Commonwealth titles and had a lengthy feud with Johnny Smith, who was billed as Davy Boy Smith's brother, um, but was a kayfabe member of, um, of the Hart family at that point, and was just, or the Smith family, I should say, and was very much put into storyline from Stu Hart. Um, it was about for over a year, which both men traded back, back and forth the British Commonwealth title. In late 1989, Stampede closed its doors, and with a recommendation from Bad News Allen, otherwise known as Bad News Brown from uh, the 1980s, from the WWF, uh, Benoit was Benoit departed for New Japan Pro Wrestling, and this was a tenure that basically went from uh, 1986 to 1984 to 1994, I should say, um, and it was a fluctuation between going back and forth between companies. But his first tenure it started there in 1986. Upon arriving in New Japan, Benoit spent about a year in the very infamous New Japan Dojo, which with younger wrestlers to improve all of his abilities. While in the dojo, he spent months doing strenuous activities, mostly push-ups and floor sweeping before entering the ring. And that also included such as uh, taking care of all of the, all the top guys, making sure all their meals were done, making sure all their dishes were done, making sure their clothes were to them, making sure all the things that took taking care of a top guy. So you really had to pay. You really have to pay your dues when you go down to New Japan. The way it really works yeah. in a dojo, right? Like, right. Yeah. Well, the way it works cool. in any promotion, like when you're the bottom end tier guy, yeah, you're, yeah. you're the guys that bring in the ring. You're the guys that yeah. set up the ring. You set up the mats. You set up the merch. You set up everything. Some of you even take tickets at the door yep. because you're not going to be on the card that night. Yep. So you do you do have to work your way up. Not so much now as obviously the undercard promotions are more so elite than they yeah. were before. Like take NXT, for example. Those guys don't put the ring together anymore. When it started, they did. Yeah. Not anymore. Yeah. But this, as far as I was ever concerned, I think of all the all the training grounds that went down for, for wrestling. I think this was probably the most... The, the the most drill sergeanty army like way of, of getting it done or really like you gotta respect these guys otherwise they're gonna kick your ass out of there so fast and they they really push you to the point that they make you want to leave like Annapolis <laughs> he made his Japanese debut uh, in 1986 uh, with his real name then in 1989 he started wearing a mask and working under the name the Pegasus Kid Benoit said many many times that he hated the mask but it was eventually became part of him. And it was much the same as, like, his surroundings when he first showed up in New Japan. Very foreign, very different, didn't like any of it. It was bad news. He basically warned him about all of this that was going on, but wasn't really having much of any of it. So it was really, between the culture shock and the mask, there was not really a whole lot of morale that was keeping Benoit going right now. But uh, at the same time, Benoit really came into his own as a performer, working with the, the NJPW having critically acclaimed matches with amazing dance partners such as Jushin Thunder Liger, Shinjiro, Shinjiro Otani, Black Tiger, and El Samurai in the junior heavyweight division. In August, in August 1990, he won his first major championship, capturing the IWGP Junior Heavyweight Championship from Jushin Thunder Liger. He eventually lost the title in November 1990 and July 1991 in Japan, as well as in November 1991 in Mexico, and that was when he lost it back to Liger. This forced Benoit at this point to reinvent himself as Wild Pegasus. This was a hard. This was a really hard pill for Chris to swallow, since he had adopted a lot of love for the mask. But the change was cast down from the New Japan management, and they would they would request that Chris enter his first match with his new identity, and before the match started, rip the mask off, and Wild Pegasus was off and running. And that was basically huge. 
considering the fact that they wanted to turn full-blown heel. There's no better way to do that, considering you rip your mask off and you're a luchador, and whether people know it or not, you're immediately getting heat for that. So that was a really good change, and it was obviously a great change for reinvention in general for Benoit, since he spent the next four since he spent the next couple of years in Japan winning the best of the Super Juniors tournament twice in 1993 and 1995. He went on to win the inaugural Super J Cup tournament, defeating uh, in 1994, defeating Black Tiger Guido and the Great Sasuke in the finals. He wrestled outside New Japan occasionally to compete in both Mexico and Europe, where he won a few regional championships, including the WWF Light Heavyweight Championship. Benoit held that title for over a year, having many 40-plus minute matches with Volano III. Now let's look at his first and quite short stint in WCW. It really wasn't even documented in his documentary because it was really like kind of up and down. But at the same time, um, it's kind of worth. It's also worth looking at. Benoit first first came to WCW in 1992, uh, teaming with fellow Canadian wrestler Biff Wellington for the NWA World Tag Team Championship. I remember that guy. Yeah, I remember that guy. God, thank God he did not make it any further than he did. His name was Biff. Whenever I think of Biff, side note, I always think of, you know, Back to the Future. The bad guy's name was Biff. I do. I just that, associate that. I think that. about uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. When he's talking about, like, uh, when he's at New at Carlton's school. Oh, yeah. Another, yeah. yeah. One yeah. guy's name is Biff, and the other guy's name is Chip. Like, every yeah. white guy in like, Chip. All right, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Yeah. I know we weren't going to go joking, but, yeah, we just got off. Yeah. So go ahead. No continue. worries, because Biff, Biff Wellington, Wellington was actually, Biff Wellington, if anything, white was, like, stink really, name, like, yeah, he really was. He was super, super white and over only over in Canada. <laughs> uh, they, were, they were put together for the NWA World Tag Team Championship Tournament, so it was very obvious at that point it was just WCW. They needed another body, and they just needed another guy to just come in and fill the tournament. They were defeated by Brian Pillman and Jushin Thunder Liger in the first round of Clash of the Champions 14. He did not return to WCW until January 1993 at Clash of the Champions 22, defeating Brad Armstrong. A month later, at Super Bowl 3, he lost to Two Cold Scorpio, getting pinned three seconds before a 20-minute time limit. And for those of you who know nothing about Two Cold, he was Flash Funk and in, in, in the WWE in the early 90s, but before that... Chris Benoit actually went on record to actually say of all the matches that he used to have, he would have the best ones with Eddie, and he would have the best ones with Dean. It would always be Eddie Guerrero, Dean Malenko, those both back and forths. But in that same category, also classified, and it's the only other name I've ever heard, is Too Cold Scorpio, that he actually held the matches with him and really held it down super hard. Too Cold was good. Say what you want to say about the Flash Funk character. But the dude could wrestle. He really could. It was just Vince McMahon putting Sprinkle on a bad idea, but... A too cold scorpion, not a great name either by any standpoint, but his wrestling made up for it. You go back and watch classic ECW, that guy was on point. He was on fire, man. But nobody yeah. remembers him. You only remember the Tazes, the Sabus, the Sandmans. Only when ECW got crazy hardcore, mm-hmm. that's, that's what people fell in love yeah. with. But people yeah. forget that ECW was a legitimate promotion at one point in time. And they did right. have some extreme yeah. talent. Talent that was always plucked out and ruined by our favorite, Mennonite. And then we come to find years later that that was actually a development company for WWF. So that was actually what made it even funnier to me when I found out of what how it was really good in the development. It's like we're in NXT all over again, where it was great in development, but it sucks on the main roster. Yeah, that's because Vince McMahon gets his hands on it and just ruins yeah. it. Yeah, Hollywood, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> At the same time, um, around that same time, he formed a tag team with uh, Bobby Eaton. And after he and Eaton uh, lost to Scorpio and Marcus Bagwell at, at Slambury, Benoit headed back to Japan. In 1994, Benoit began working with ECW in between tours of Japan. 
He was booked as a dominant wrestler there, gaining notoriety, gaining a lot of notoriety, and that's where the Crippler was born after he put out Rocco Rock. In August 1994, Benoit competed in a one-night, eight-man tournament for the vacant NWA World Heavyweight Championship, losing to, to Cold Scorpio in the quarterfinals. And for those of you who remember that one, that was when uh, that was when Shane Douglas came out for the infamous after he won the belt and his, his infamous speech of, of giving respect to all the old guys that ever held the NWA title and then threw it away and said they can all kiss my ass and the ECW title was born from there. Um, at uh, November, to remember, Benoit accidentally broke Sabu's neck within the opening seconds of the match. The injury happened when Benoit threw Sabu with the intention of him to take a pancake bump. And that's essentially where you throw the guy up. It's like he's going to do a backdrop, but he just lands straight on his stomach. Um, but Sabu attempted to turn in midair and Hold take on, a backdrop bump. A, sorry to interrupt you. I thought that was called a gut buster. Is it's, that move not a gut buster where you throw the dude up and he lands right on his stomach? Gut buster, pancake bump at okay. the same time. Of when, you're, when they're actually like talking industry and they're talking about what kind of bump that is. Yeah, so, okay, all right, fair enough. Sorry. I just need a clarification on that. That's, yeah, no, two sides of the same coin. It just yeah. I always heard it as a gut buster. So fair enough. Exactly. And that would be the move portrayed when uh announcer is is labeled. Or when a wrestler bonks it. Oh that? he gave him a or when a wrestler bonks it. Oh he gave him a gut buster. Gave him a gut buster. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that, yeah. That, that, that's, that's what he did. That's the classic saying it into the microphone as the announcer, and then when they actually talk industry, then that's what that's actually called. A pancake bomb. But Sabu attempted to to, uh, to turn in midair and it made it. He tried to turn it into a backdrop, but instead, uh, Sabu he didn't really achieve full rotation and he landed directly on his neck. So that completely broke the crap out of it. And then after the match, uh, Benoit returned to the locker room. He broke down with the possibility that he might have actually paralyzed someone. Paul Heyman promptly came up with the idea of continuing the Crippler moniker for Benoit. From that point on, until his departure from ECW, he was known as Crippler Benoit. And um, a funny story that goes along with that is apparently uh, Benoit, he was calling up the next morning to uh, the hospital to find out what was going on with Sabu, and all he could get a hold of was Paul Heyman. Paul Heyman then immediately, when he was asking, so how's Sabu, when Benoit is like, so how's Sabu doing? He immediately hops in, doesn't tell him how he's doing, but tells him all about what he's going to do with this Crippler idea. And now, oh man, I got the, all you got to do is just... Take your hands and you're just, you're rubbing your hands together and nobody, nobody can mess with you once I start rubbing these hands together and I just, I, I'm going to be the biggest bad guy in the whole world and that's what you're going to be. You're going to be Crippler Chris Benoit. And then go Paul Heyman, like this, right? can't turn, yeah. can't turn the switch off. This whole like idea and then of course Chris Benoit chiming in with, uh, yeah, but like what's going on with Sabu? How's he doing? How's he doing? <laughs> but uh, yeah, when he returned to WCW in October 95, that was when WCW modified his ring name to Crippler, the Canadian Crippler, Chris Benoit. And in the book, The Rise and Fall of ECW, Heyman commented that he was planned on using Benoit as dominant, as the most dominant heel for quite some time within the company before putting the company's main title on him, ECW Championship. Um, and that was where the whole idea came from of just being that guy that was just going to be the really super, super tough Crippler, Chris Benoit. Um, Benoit and Dean Malenko, they won the ECW World Tag Team Championships from Sabu and the Tasmaniac in February 1995. After winning, they were initiated into the Triple Threat Stable, led by World ECW World Heavyweight Champion Shane Douglas. That was Douglas's really terrible attempt at recreating the Four Horsemen as the three-man, the three-horsemen contingency held by three of the championships, the ECW championships at the time. That third title was the ECW World Television title that Dean Malenko also held. Benoit Malenko lost the tag belts to Public Enemy that April at ECW Three-Way Dance. By the end... 
Benoit was forced to leave ECW after his work visa expired. Heyman was supposed to renew it, but he failed to make it happen on time. Typical Paul Heyman. And he simply toured Japan until WCW called once again. And this is where Benoit's career really, really picks up. Uh, New Japan and WCW, they had a really strong working relationship, and it was because of their quote-unquote talent exchange program. Benoit signed with WCW in, in late 1995, along with a mass hiring of talent from New Japan. Like the majority that came with him, um, they, were all, they were all lumped into uh, the cruiserweight division, having likely matches against many of his former rivals in Japan and almost every single broadcast. At the end of 1995, he went back to Japan and competed in the Super J Cup second stage uh, in 1994. Dave Meltzer called this the single greatest night of wrestling ever. And that was when uh, defeating Lionheart, at that time, was going by the name Lionheart, which we all know today as Chris Jericho, in the quarterfinals. And then losing to Guido in the semis. After impressing the higher-ups with his work, Benoit was approached by Ric Flair and the WCW booking staff to become a member of the reformed Four Horsemen in 1995. Oh, is that the with Mongo? Uh, no, that's a little bit later on. That was when Flair, he wanted to really take it to the next level because they were involved in the storyline with, uh, with uh, the alliance to end Hulkamania. Um, that was when it was Ric Flair, Arn Anderson, Brian Pillman, and, uh, and Chris Benoit. Benoit okay. was introduced as a serious force to be reckoned with kind of heel, which mirrored the same kind of persona they had in ECW, and it was exactly, apparently, Ric Flair says that's exactly what they were looking for to really bring up the stable and make them that kind of tough, badass, no-nonsense four horsemen that they're used to. Benoit was brought in as a new dynamic for Anderson and Flair's constant tormenting of Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage in the feud of the Alliance to end Hulkamania, which saw the four horsemen team up with the Dungeon of Doom. The alliance was cut short, however, due to the dungeon leader and WCW booker Kevin Sullivan being in a feud with Brian Pillman. Not long after that, Pillman pr- abruptly left and uh, left the company and uh, for WC for yeah, for WWF. And Benoit was placed in an ongoing feud with Sullivan. This would all come to fruition through a dissension between the two in a tag team match with heavy reluctance teaming together, mind you, against Public Enemy. And as a result, Benoit was attacked by Sullivan at Slamboree. This would lead to having incredibly violent matches at every pay-per-view or TV the feud touched. This led to Sullivan booking the feud in which Benoit was having an affair with Sullivan's real-life wife and on-screen valet Nancy, also known as Woman. Benoit and Nancy were were forced to spend time together and make the affair look as real as possible. This included holding hands in public, sharing hotel rooms, etc. This inevitably led to an on-screen relationship developing into real life. As a result, Sullivan and Benoit weren't exactly the best of friends backstage. <laughs> Benoit did, however, admit having a certain amount of respect for Sullivan, saying in his DVD, Hard Knocks, the Chris Benoit story, that Sullivan never took it too far in the ring during the feud, even though he did blame Benoit for breaking up the marriage. This would continue over the course of a year, with Benoit and the Dungeon of Doom apprehending Benoit in a multitude of matches. This would culminate in a retirement match or a career match at Bash of the Beach, where Benoit beat Sullivan to cap one of, if not literally, the greatest feud that WCW ever had in its history. You this go back and watch that. Yeah, it's it's crazy of just how real good. life it was and how much they made it real life, and they really took that, spun it, and they never really did that again. But I don't think you could blame Benoit feud. for the marriage ending. I mean, you book it and you right. say, "Yo, spend time with my wife." Right. Okay. <laughs> 
right? There was so much. The chips will fall where they. I will. I will spend. I will spend time with your wife. I will. You know what? I will do this. I will sacrifice for you. I will take her out to dinner. I will share a hotel room with her. I'll rub lotion on her back at the beach. And everybody thought that it was. Everybody blamed Sullivan for like, oh, he buried Benoit every chance he got, and he did this and that because he broke up his marriage. It's like, dude, actually, Sullivan was the entire reason that the whole thing happened in the first place. Like, when you actually look at that, that's how it happened. <laughs> and uh, I'm just I'm, I'm just reading through here. Where was I? Uh, this match in particular was used to explain Sullivan making the, making the move strictly to WCW booking and staying focused on his initial role. Um, and now, just going to play a little clip of... Uh, this is Nancy's sister, Sandra, her twin sister, Sandra, that actually attests to... Um, some of the backstage events that actually took place on the day of that retirement match. It was was with Chris and Kevin. It was a retirement match. So you could tell something wasn't, wasn't going right. It was, it was was very, you know, it wasn't just what's usually choreographed and gone through. Everyone knows you can seriously get injured during wrestling. You know, the worst things can happen. And, I saw Kevin sort of lose his balance after a hit from Chris to the head, and uh, I didn't know what was going on. And he had boxed Kevin's ear, and so um, they were really fighting. They were they were going at it mm-hmm. hard, and then cameras cut off, and they went back into the dressing rooms. And then um, Uncle Rick came out. Rick Flair had come out uh, for just a moment and put his hand in the air and waved mm-hmm. at myself and and Kevin's daughter to get up, and we walked back there, and and they were fighting in the hallway. Wow. Yeah. But someone was standing between them mm-hmm. and, uh, and Kevin said, come on, we're leaving. He motioned to me and I started to walk toward him and Chris, that Chris stepped toward me and grabbed my arm. And he said, your sister wants you to come with me. Mm-hmm. And I said, I don't know. I didn't know him yeah, at all. You know, I'm like, um, I'm going with my brother-in-law. What are you crazy? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> He's like, no. He's like, I'll call her right now. And he did. He called my sister right then and there. And I got on the phone with her. She's like, I want you to leave with Chris right now. Get out of there. And that was my first, my first introduction Maybe. to Chris. Was a we- weird, awkward yeah. situation. But he was very calm and and you know kind to me when I was like what is going on? Like just mm-hmm. freaking out about it. And then once I got home with my sister and got the whole rest of the story, I, I understood a little bit more. It was. Yeah. So that really kind of gives you an idea of just how like really truly heated that, that rival really was how much you kept it backstage stuff, but it was really like, from what I understand, it was super professional on both of their ends in the ring. Um, now we're getting into 98. Benoit was at a long feud with Booker T over the WCW world television championship until Booker lost to lost the title to Fit Finley, um, but management had an idea to actually put them in for the number one contendership for that title. They decided to go with a best of seven series, which had never really been done before. And how in the world would you ever do it? Because most people usually only have a, a feud of three. This was seven matches that they were talking about actually doing, and the first of its kind. Um, Benoit went up three to one before Booker caught up and forced the seventh match and the final match on an episode of Nitro. During the match, Bret Hart interjected himself, interfering on behalf of Benoit in an attempt to get him to join the NWO. Benoit refused to win that way and told the ref that what happened to get himself disqualified. Booker refused that victory, instead opting for an eighth match at the Great American Bash, obviously because the feud was so good, and that was when Booker was literally a luchador and Benoit was at the top of his game. So like that was when the feud was super red hot. This feud significantly elevated both men's careers as singles competitors and made things very interesting for where Chris was going to go. 
1999. Benoit teamed up with Dean Malenko once again and beat Kurt Henning and, Bar and Barry Windham to win the WCW World Tag Team Championships. This led to the reformation of the Four Horsemen once again, as there you go, bud. As final installment, and many call it the last gasp, and from what I call it, the super, super, super shit version. Just of want to say, whenever you put Mongo in a faction, it's always going to be garbage. <laughs> and that was like the only thing he did besides commentary, was he was a member of the Four Horsemen, and then after that, oh, it was like, really, so like, sorry guys, but take that horseman out in the back and shoot him. Because like, it's really, it's done. It's over. He was the only um, other of the group. Yeah, and it was this resurrection which included... Uh, the tag team champions is, of course, Arn Anderson and Steve Mongo McMichael. <laughs> oh. The new Four Horsemen, it essentially turned out to be the equivalent of the new Midnight Express, if anybody really remembers that from Cornette's thing that he put tried to put together. It lasted a few months, at best, until the fallout with Anderson and McMichael happened, leaving Benoit and, and Malenko quitting the Horsemen. See Benoit just go on to another singles run and win the, the WCW United States Heavyweight Championship before bringing together... Once before bringing together Malenko, Perry Saturn, and Shane Douglas to form the Revolution. The Revolution was a heel stable of young wrestlers who felt slighted, both kayfabe and legitimate, by WCW management, believing that they didn't give them their fair shake, and that they're, all they're doing is pushing older wrestlers, more established wrestlers, instead of all the while, these are the guys that are going out there and having the best matches the whole damn night. Well, we've, heard, we've heard Jericho say that on countless DNAs. Yeah. He even said it on the rise of all of WCW. He quoted it in his own story. They've all said it. Eddie Guerrero said it. I remember when Eddie Guerrero threw coffee on himself. Yeah. I don't need you bitch off here. I want out of my contract. And it was yeah. a big, that was a big yeah. moment in WCW. That's when the lines between reality and storyline got very, very blurred. Yeah. Yeah. Because you didn't know what was real, what was fake. And that's why at that point in time, WCW, even though it was imploding, they were hotter. And yeah, that's why it was so They were good. hotter so because we, you never knew if it was real or if it was fake. And then you find out after how everybody had heat. Everybody had heat. Even the craft services people were beefing. Yeah. Right? Like everybody in WCW had freaking heat. Everybody. It was great. <laughs> it was all because they were incorporating. They were starting to get it. And it was, it's a, it was at that time when Bischoff was coming around. And Bischoff loves real. And so, therefore, um, it was no wonder when some of the stuff started coming to the forefront of like, okay, man, we got to start bringing real life stuff in it. Like, how are we going to sell anything to anybody unless they're emotionally attached to it? We got to start bringing in real stuff. And that's why the Kevin Sullivan, the, the Kevin Sullivan feud turned out to be the best one because it was just so real. And so many people can relate to that of what that feels like and that feeling of, oh, my God, I either got never cheated on or I'm the cheater. Never one or the other. a friend's wife. <laughs> never done it. <laughs> never. <laughs> but, however, this faction, uh, it was basically like, well, like we were just talking about. It was totally played out in real life for the gimmick that it was written for. And the revolution, for the revolution, since it was just highly disregarded and flopped just as quickly as it started. Benoit quit the group and turned fit, and that basically turned a face, and now he was off and running to finally get a chance to run with top guys. And being a small guy, this is a privilege. The match, however, that truly cemented Chris Benoit as a main eventer, and quite frankly, the best match of his entire career, was October 4th, 1999, on Monday Nitro at Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Missouri. Benoit wrestled Bret Hart as a tribute to Owen Hart. They 100% tore the house down. Bret beat Chris with the sharpshooter, and they both received a standing O for giving us the best of everything that they could possibly give us that night. Owen most definitely would have been smiling down looking at that match. Now we are at the time where Chris is just terribly unhappy working for WCW. Management made one last attempt in January early 2000 
to keep him happy by putting the vacant WCW World Heavyweight Championship on him, and this meant beating Sid Vicious at sold out, technically making this his first heavyweight championship win. But due to disagreements with management and to protest the, pro- the promotion of Kevin Sullivan to head booker, Benoit left the company the next day alongside with Eddie Guerrero, Dean Malenko, and Perry Saturn, forfeiting the title in the process. WCW then refused to acknowledge Benoit's win as an official title reign, so in a very spiteful rage, WCW promptly took Benoit off the list of heavyweight title lineage on WCW.com. WWE, however, after Glasses. the signing yeah, right. and when he moved, uh, WWE, however, did recognize the title win, and you could find it at that time as listed in Chris Benoit's title lineage on WWE.com at that time. Absolutely uh, right. But after WCW, Chris spent the next few weeks in Japan before heading to WWE. But of course, he didn't come alone. Benoit, de- Benoit debuted in WWF along with his close friends, Eddie Guerrero, Perry Saturn, and Dean Malenko, on January 31st, 2000 episode of Raw is War. What they a would great de- night. Oh, Remember man. the hype that Eddie Guerrero got on that frickin' frog, frog splash? Remember how high he got? Just that Followed first by Benoit's headbutt. Yeah. yeah, the first camera shot, but I remember Eddie. You know, I remember Eddie, I was like, that's a nice suit. He had on a cream suit with a vest, white t-shirt, had his, <laughs> you know, his big-ass chain, looking good! And he hit that frog splash, must have been 10 feet, 11 feet off the ground, from the turnbuckle. The height he got, and then the headbutt from Benoit, right. when you were a fan, and those four guys, well, three out of the four came out. Sorry, I never was a Barry Satter fan, always hated him. Moppy? Moppy, forget about it. Oh, but when those four guys, when those three out of four guys came out that night, you knew... Yeah. That Vince McMahon won the war. He won it, and he had it in the bag from that day. 100%. Even though it took another year to get it done, he had it in the bag yeah. that day. That was the landscape that changed. 100%. Um, this was when they were debut. They would debut as audience members, only to be later known as the Radicals. The real highlight was, of course, when the four of them just hopped in the guardrail and just beating the crap out of Al Snow, Steve Blackman, <laughs> and the New Age Outlaws. After losing their tryout matches, quote-unquote, when each of them got their first match, uh, the Radicals quickly aligned themselves with WWF champion at the time, Triple H, doing his bidding and becoming basically a really solid heel faction at the time. Uh, Benoit won his first title just over a month later at WrestleMania 2000 in a triple threat match against Chris, Chris Jericho and Kurt Angle, capturing the Intercontinental Championship. Great match. Yeah. Great yeah. match. Absolutely brilliant. It was also this time period that Benoit wrestled in his first WWF pay-per-view main events, two to be exact. The first would be Benoit challenging The Rock for the WWF Championship at Fully Loaded in July. The second time would be, wouldn't be until September at Unforgiven, also against The Rock for the title. On both nights, Benoit appeared to have won, but only, only to have the decision reversed by, at that time, WWF Commissioner Mick Foley due to cheating on Benoit's part. The Crippler was a very busy boy at this time, as Chris was simultaneously entered in a long-running feud with Chris Jericho for the IC title, with the two meeting at Backlash, Judgment Day, and SummerSlam, with Benoit going over on all three encounters. The final, the final, the feud finally culminated with the barn burner, of course, that was the ladder match that Beyond tore the house down from Royal Rumble 2001. Chris took a lot of pride in doing the best job that he could night in and night out. For a few years prior to him finally getting a shot that we all knew that he deserved, of course, that was that was Benoit's chance to finally become WWE Heavyweight Champion. 
we wanted to see this for him for many years. If you were a Chris Benoit fan for as long as, as that tenure had been going on up until that point, you could not wait to see him finally get the opportunity that you knew he deserved. And when you saw it finally becoming a reality, we watched Benoit put it, put in the work to work solidly with the, to list the top guys that he needed to work with, that he needed time with to really mold Benoit to a place where the word mid card would no longer apply to the world that Benoit strictly came from having great matches with the great work and great work ethic with guys like Triple H, Kurt Angle, Edge and Christian, Rey Mysterio, and particularly when he actually had was put in a mini feud with Stone Cold Steve Austin in 2001 for two TV matches that kept Vince McMahon's eye on just what a main eventer and solid draw that Chris Benoit was actually becoming. All of this hard work would lead up to the biggest and greatest night of Chris Benoit's wrestling career. On January 25th, 2004, he won the Royal Rumble by lasting by last eliminating Big Show and thus winning himself a title shot at WrestleMania 20. Here's where the match set up. A really great, solid storylining really gets into the mix. With Chris being on the SmackDown brand at the time, it was very assumed that it was now going to be positioned in puzzle piece for Eddie Guerrero and Chris Benoit, and we really thought we were going to get that match for a second. But then Chris found a loophole and exploited it and was traded to uh, to Raw the following night to announce that he will instead challenge the world heavyweight champion Triple H. This loophole clause, an interesting little tidbit, is this loophole clause actually just naturally became standard storyline practice with the Royal Rumble winner after that, free to choose the title of which he will challenge. And that was, of course, until titles became unified in 03, and now we see it happening once again with the effect of what happened with the Universal title. Uh, this match at, Re- at Mania 20 was, however, supposed to be a one-man but well, one on one. But this was at the time when Shawn Michaels was in his "I'm back" and playing WWE Champion Hot Potato with my best friend. So naturally, Shawn had to fit somewhere. That being said, during the championship match contract signing, instead of Benoit being able to sign the contract, Michaels super kicks the Crippler and signs his name instead, which which eventually leads to a triple threat match between Michaels, Benoit, and Triple H for the title at WrestleMania 20. This was match of the year of 2004, and Benoit and Trips won best feud of the year in 2004 also. So it gives you an idea of, if you haven't seen this match, go back and check that out, man. On March 14, 2004, in Madison Square Garden, in front of 18,000 New York wrestling fans, and the rest of us home on pay-per-view at WrestleMania 20, Chris Benoit won the heavyweight championship by forcing Triple H to tap out to the Crippler crossface. One of the coolest moments in wrestling history. The match also made history as it marked the first time that the main event of WrestleMania ended in a submission. After the match, Benoit, Benoit celebrated with his buddy Eddie Guerrero and the two best and basically just being the small dudes that at one time those titles were only held by big dudes. So that picture completely changed the entire landscape of the WWF for the better. And who put Benoit over? The guy who everybody says buried talent, Triple H. Just want to throw that out there. I had to throw that out there. Yeah, but everybody says he buried talent, and he didn't. Look how many times he's lost at WrestleMania. Yeah, how many times he's put guys over. Yeah, and that's actually true. Because but later on, when you actually listen to him talk about that, you actually come to find that that was Triple H's sole job. That's what he understood was his giving. That as much as uh, for Benoit, and that's why that made that match so wonderful. Because it was two guys, three guys. They were all in that ring that all gave everything they have of every bit of ounce, sweat, blood, tears, love, time, everything you can possibly imagine to just wrestling. 
and you got to see all three of them just doing their thing in the ring, and that's what made it so special with a guy like Triple H in his mind putting a guy like Chris over and anointing him with what he truly just genuinely well, But even if you go have. back and you look at like Triple H's title runs, they're all very tiny, other than the two, where he had a 202-day run and a 198-day run. Other than those two long runs, most of his runs were short. Three-month runs, four-month runs, not very big runs. He yeah. was always the guy that just held the belt to put over the next guy. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, say what you want to say about the dude. Okay, yeah, he's... Like no, straight up, Triple wife, H could talk the best out of talent everybody, over. and that's why he was so good at being able to put talent over. He was a guy that could just go in there, talk, and he could go in there and have a great match every time. 100%. And, of course, because of this, there had to be a rematch. And speaking of putting guys over, this is how roundabout that both of these guys were to making Chris Benoit at this point, how devoted they were to making Chris Benoit at this point. They had to have the rematch, and of course it was a month later at Backlash in Benoit's hometown of Edmonton. It was once again uh, a triple threat match between Benoit, Michaels, and Trips, only to have only this time it would be Michaels tapping out to the sharpshooter, and Benoit retains. So that is just such, to me, I'm just like, that's so special that both of you guys took that time out to go do that and put that guy over. And to tap out to the sharpshooter yeah. of Michaels' greatest enemy, right? The yeah. The of his greatest enemy right. in the province where Shawn Michaels is literally the most hated dude ever. Yeah, right. when it could have been the Crippler crossface, yeah. when they could have done it again yeah. with the crossface, but was like, no, you're going to beat me with the sharpshooter. Yeah, makes, makes total <laughs> logical right. sense. Absolutely. <laughs> The next night in Calgary, and this is literally how much they were they were literally banked on Chris Benoit. The next night in Calgary, he and Edge won the world tag team titles from Batista and Ric Flair, making Benoit a double champion. So he wins the title at WrestleMania and then wins the belts, the tag belts, the next night. Benoit and Edge held on to the tag belts for three months in a rivalry mainly mainly driven with La Resistance while simultaneously having confrontations with Kane over the world title. So basically just floating back and forth between these two storylines. Crippler would wrestle two matches at January 13th. Bad blood in respect in his both respective rivalries. He and Edge failed to hold on to the tag belts as they lost those, but Benoit had more successful match beating Kane to retain his world title. Crippler would retain his title until SummerSlam when the belt changed hands to Mr. Randall. I have the face that could pass for a 14-year-old Orton. That guy was so young when he won that belt back then. This then led to many storylines being written for Benoit and being canceled nearly abruptly, or if not just like unbelievably abruptly. I believe Vince McMahon pulled the plug on the title on the title reign due to Chris's sheer lack of ability to cut a promo. And furthermore, only being stuck in this intense just really glaring very angrily like he's a heel at his opponents when he's supposed to be a babyface. The babyface. Can't come off like that and have things work out in business, especially in Vince McMahon's world. This all means in a very Vince McMahon sports entertainment business-like roundabout kind of way, Chris is being demoted back to mid-card. Chris had a, a U.S. title run. Um, there were some accolades in there, but really at, the, at, the, at this point, it's really all about Orlando Jordan when they just made him. He lost his match. And then he ended up beating Orlando. Jory lost his first match to Orlando and then ended up going back and beating him three times over. But he won it in a total of the time span of a minute. So he essentially beat him like a Goldberg. Um, it was almost worse than beating him like the way Goldberg would beat people. But uh, ended up coming out of it as a five-time uh, U.S. title runner, as a, a U.S. title winner at that point. Um, now we're going to get into the events that uh, lead up to everything, and this is when Chris uh, went to ECW. This is when the brand split happened, and on June 11th, 2007, Chris Benoit was drafted from SmackDown to ECW. Chris won his ECW debut match, teaming with CM Punk and going over on Elijah Burke and Marcus Corvon. 
by DQ. On July on June 19, 2007, Benoit wrestled his last match, beating uh, beating Elijah Burke to determine who would compete for the vacant ECW championship at Vengeance. The events leading up, this is the weekend prior to uh, the events that led up to this in, incredible tragedy. The weekend leading up to Vengeance, Chris missed the Friday and Saturday house shows, telling WWE, telling WWE officials that his wife and son were vomiting blood and were and due to food poisoning. When Chris failed to show up for the pay-per-view, viewers were informed that he was unable to compete due to a family emergency, and he was replaced in the title match by Johnny Nitro, who won the match and became the ECW champion. Stephanie would actually go on later to actually attest that that was supposed to be the plans for Chris Benoit. He was supposed to be the champion and actually hold on to it for uh, for quite some time. Um, and the what we would find out later on um, that would be one of the greatest shocks and mysteries, literally in the entire wrestling world, and still kind of shakes us up to this very day. On June twenty fifth. 2007, police enter Chris Benoit's home in Fayetteville, Georgia. Officers discover the bodies of Chris Benoit, his wife Nancy, and their seven-year-old son Daniel at approximately 2.30 p.m. Upon investigating, no additional suspects were sought by authorities as and was supposedly determined, quote-unquote, that Chris committed the murders. Media then ran with a supposed story that police said over the course of three days, Chris killed his wife and son, all before killing himself. His wife and son supposedly had Bibles placed on their chests and hands placed in a very Undertaker or vampire-like or much the same as you would place a person in a coffin. You would see them placed in a coffin with their hands um, over their chests, um, and, and draped over them, placed in Nancy's and Chris's bed. His wife, and suppose, his wife was supposedly bound during the killing, and his son was drugged with Xanax, and likely unconscious before Benoit strangled him. Lastly, Chris committed suicide by hanging himself on his lap pull-down machine. WWE promptly, re, re, promptly rewrote and relabeled the, the scheduled three-hour-long sh Raw show for the very obvious reason that now we have to make this a tribute show for Chris Benoit. This three-hour tribute was about Chris's life, his career featuring his past matches, segments, and his documentary DVD Hard Knocks, Chris Benoit's story. And mostly a celebration from his family, close friends, fellow wrestlers, announcers, and WWE officials. However, once the details of the murder-suicide became apparent, WWE quickly and quietly began distancing itself from Chris's name by removing him from merchandise and mainly by never mentioning his name ever again at the time of what was the mentality. This part came in full, full fruition on June 26th when ECW began and Vince McMahon addressed the television audience about a murder-slash-suicide circumstances and announcing that there will be no more mention of Benoit that night other than his comments. This was the last night of WWE broadcast that uttered the name Chris Benoit. Toxicology reports that was released on, Ju on July 17, 2007 revealed that at the time of death, Nancy had three different drugs in her system that you would see Xanax, hydrocodone, and hydromorphone. And were all supposedly found at a therapeutic level rather than a toxic or lethal, lethal, lethal dosage. Daniel was found to have Xanax in his system, both, uh, the, both the lead, which the lead chief examiner um, was to believe that he was sedated before he was murdered. Benoit was found to have Xanax, hydrocodone, 
and an elevated level of testosterone supposedly caused by a synthetic form of hormone in his system. The chief examiner attributed that the testosterone level of Venwap uh, possibly being treated for a deficiency caused by previous steroid use or a testicular insufficiency, which I don't understand why they even bothered giving a shit to even put that in there because um, it's irrelevant. There is no identica- there, there is no indication that there is anything of, in Benoit's body contributed to the violent behavior that led to the murder-suicide, including that there is absolutely no roid rage involved. So whatever bullshit story of the steroid stuff, it doesn't exist. Prior to the supposed murder-suicide, Benoit was given illegal steroids, apparently not in compliance with WWE Talent, talent Wellness Program in February 2006. It was reported that Benoit received n- n- nandrolone and and uh, there's uh, there's another drug that is very hard to read and an astrazole. <laughs> it was also ruled as of, as any possibility because during the investigation into the actual steroid abuse itself, it was later revealed that many other wrestlers also had been given steroids. After learning of this heinous crime, former uh, wrestler Chris Nowitzki contacted Michael Benoit, Chris Benoit's dad, suggesting. Years of trauma to his son's brain may have led to these actions. Tests were conducted on Benoit's brain by Julian Bales, the head of neurosurgery at West Virginia University, and results showed that Benoit's brain was severely damaged. It, result, it, it resembled the brain of an 85-year-old man with an 85-year-old Alzheimer's patient. It was reported to have an advanced form of dementia. And similarly, the brains of four retired NFL players who suffered multiple concussions, sank into depression, and harmed themselves or others. Bales and his colleagues concluded that repeated concussions can lead to dementia, which contributes to severe behavioral problems. Benoit's father suggests that brain damage may have been the leading cause of the crime. He confirmed that Chris was quietly cremated, but what was done with the ashes was not public knowledge. Once the details of Benoit's actions became apparent, WWE made the decision to remove nearly all mentions of Benoit from their website and from future broadcasts and publications. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the Chris Benoit story that still leads up to this very day of just what actually really truly did happen in that case. And I'd actually be really interested to hear your guys' thoughts of Michelle, what do you think? Well, let's get into the thoughts after, but let's play these clips because the clips are kind of paired now because they tie into everything you just talked about. No, absolutely. There's uh... so the first one I'm going to play is the one you uh, the one you mentioned to me. It's uh, it's from the Larry King show. It's uh, right after, right very in and around when this whole thing happened. I think this was a week after, and this was uh, this is what Chris Jericho and Bret Hart were on the show. Jericho was in studio, I believe, and Bret Hart was via satellite from his home in Edmonton. Yes, and it was actually, it's, it's a panel, and it's concluding once again of uh, that there is absolutely no reason of just essentially it's all of the WWE alumni sitting there all attesting to once again, this had nothing to do with roid rage, and this digs a little bit deeper than what this situation and story is being presented to us as. There we go, this is the first clip here. I was my hero, and I was privileged enough to be able to work with him and to know him as a person and to call him my friend. Anytime Chris Benoit went to the ring, he gave it 120% every single night of the week. He truly lived for the business. He just, uh, he did, he did everything for him. He was passionate 
son. But I, what I also knew about Chris was how passionate he was about family. We're going to spend a couple of minutes at the CNN Center in Atlanta with Manny Aurora, the attorney for Dr. Phil Aston. He is uh, Dr. Aston Crispin was friend and personal physician. A federal grand jury has indicted Dr. Aston on seven counts of overprescribing painkillers and other drugs. I understand, Manny, that the painkillers and overprescriptions on the indictment do not involve Benoit. Is that correct? That's correct. They involved two patients, one that was seen five times between 2004 and 2005, and one patient that was seen twice in 2005. That's the entire so indictment. Why was the story then connecting Aston and Benoit since the indictment doesn't connect it? Well, it's based on all the press releases the government has done. The first thing I need your viewers to understand is when they did the initial search of his house back on the 27th of June, they actually called the press in advance of the 5 o'clock news so you could see the battering ram breaking the door down. And about 10 minutes later, you see Dr. Aston coming into the office. There's no need for that. This has been way over-publicized. The only link in, in an explanation to say what happened to Mr. Benoit is saying that the doctor must have prescribed him some medication. There's been no proof of that, and the indictment shows that there's no link at this point. They were friends? Yes, they'd been doctor-patient and friends for over six years. And how has your client pled? He's pled not guilty to those counts, and... Um, you know, we're going to fight this all the way. Would you say, have you spoken to your client about whether he ever prescribed anything for Benoit? Right. I've talked to my client at length about all these issues, and we don't want to get into any of the facts or the discussions we have. I simply want to stick to the indictment and the press releases the government seems to keep making over and over again and emphasize that there's no link between Chris Benoit's death and Dr. Aston. And you say that definitively, but... I say definitively, if they have something, just like one of your other guests said, tell them to bring the proof, and we'll fight it, and we'll see what happens. Thank you, Manny. Manny Aurora, the attorney for Dr. Phil Aston. Do you think this is going to go anywhere? I don't the steroid thing. Well, I think everyone's tapping the steroid issue just a little too much. It's got a certain mystique to what, so they just keep sticking on that issue. I've seen many guys take astronomical amounts of those things, not in WWE. I've, I witnessed that when I was in the small independent leagues working my way up, and I never saw anyone act like this or even, you know, with no rage whatsoever. I'm sure these guys have witnessed, the, you know, the same thing. It goes through a lot of the, a lot of the over-publicized hype because this is one of those things that is just unfathomable, unsolvable, and they need they need to point the blame on something. And that's, like, that's it's like, it's like Chris said, it's the easy fix. It's lazy um, because it's a hot-button topic. Steroids is yeah. the, is the, the, if that's like the case. calling the media to be at the house before you yeah, of course that's right and, and we're learning a lot about the media since this has happened well, and, the, 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 and the other thing when you start talking about the number of wrestlers that have died under the age of 45 over a period of years and when you try to link that to steroids you know most of those guys died died of, of drug and alcohol related issues so that panel consisted of uh john cena chris jericho ted dibiase and steve blackman and I was the attorney for the doctor that was indicted. And from what I understand, when I did my research this morning, I don't believe he was ever convicted of this. I think he was brought up on other charges, but this case he was never linked to at all. No, not at all. And you got you got to love the media and how they feed into the nonsense. And that's why I kind of respect Larry King because he kind of puts the information out there and he lets you decide. Yeah. Like bringing that guy's attorney on and him saying the DEA called the local news an hour before they showed up at the house so you could see the battering ram. 
being busting down the door alive. It's horrible. Yeah. And people, us as a society, we just feed into the nonsense, yeah. right? Absolutely. All right, this is another clip here of uh, Chavo Guerrero, who was also kind of in that inner circle, if I'm not mistaken, right? Like, they were all very tight-knit. Him, yep. Eddie, uh, Dean Malenko, Chris Jericho, they were all, yep. like, that very tight-knit group, right? Mm-hmm. So this, this, is, this is the weekend of uh, leading up to the events. Everybody was looking for Chris Jericho. They are trying to get in contact with him. Uh, he was totally unavailable, not picking up his phone, not doing anything. He was just a ghost. Um, and uh, this is the events of the weekend of vengeance and some very unusual text messages that uh, Mr. Chavo Guerrero was, uh, was receiving from Chris Benoit. So um, we drive to Houston the next day, me and, me and Scotty. And, uh, and still no words. Still no from Chris. We're calling him, we get nothing. I get some texts on my phone at probably 5 a.m. And I get texts from Chris. So you wake up in the morning. You've got these not texts. even before. It woke me up before oh, okay. at five in the morning. So I look and I look at the uh, my text and I'm like, "That's weird." It says the dogs are in the enclosed pool area. The garage door is open. I looked at. it. I was like, well, "That's weird." Is this one of those texts you get? You know, sometimes you get texts, you know, from three days ago, you never delivered, yeah. and then all of a sudden you got a text. And this is kind of the start of texting, you know, now it's a little different. But yeah, back it was then, 2007. A lot of times, you know, texts didn't come through and they got lost, and all of a sudden you got them. And I was like, well, that's, that's You get weird. half a text. Half a text, yeah, that was weird. So, so okay, I, I wrote it off. Then I get another text from Nancy's phone, from his wife's phone, and it said the same thing, you know, the same text. That's really weird. Okay, whatever, uh, I kind of wrote it off. So then got to get up in two hours, so I got up. I look at, um, I go downstairs to meet uh, Scotty Armstrong, and uh, I look at him, I go, did you get some weird, anything weird last night happen? And he goes, yeah, I got some weird text from, from Chris. I said, me too. Did it say this? He goes, yeah. So we call Chris. No answer, no answer, no answer. That's weird. So we go to the pay-per-view. Chris isn't showing up. And they're asking us, where's he at? Uh, I'm not sure. We're not sure where he's at. Now we're covering for him. We right. think maybe, you know. Blatantly lying. Yeah. Now, yeah. Well, yeah. We're, you know, we're blatant, you know, whatever. We're just coming from, no, I haven't heard from him. I don't know what's going on. Okay, great. Didn't tell us anything about the text, nothing. Did that, you feel something was going on weird Something, Something was going on. Something was going on. And I remember Arn Anderson saying, this is later on in the day, because he was supposed to wrestle the pay-per-view. He was supposed to wrestle for the title. For, yeah, the, the ECW championship against CM Punk. He was supposed to wrestle for him, wrestle him. And this is a big match. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember Arn Anderson saying, you know what, if Benoit didn't show up with no word, he's either has just taken off to like Alaska mm-hmm. and he's going to be like a, you know, a merchant Marine or something, or he's, or he's dead basically. That's, and, and, I remember and, him saying that not meaning it is he, he's right. dead, but there's something going on for him not to show up. And either option being just as viable. Cause I could see him just going off to become a merchant Marine. Saying, and, and screw this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And being gone, you know, basically right. the, the ending of Dexter, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Um, and then, uh, so I didn't say anything. We didn't say anything. The next day we're in Corpus Christi for a super show, another super show. And, uh, those damn super shows, man. Yeah. Know what's got yeah. Me, man. And you still didn't know anything. We still didn't know. We've been calling, been calling, been calling. So finally I go to Johnny and I said, well, Johnny, Johnny was the head of talent relations. Mm-hmm. Go, Johnny, this is my phone. This is what I got yesterday. And he's like, you know, with his Johnny voice, Travo, hey, what are you talking about? Why didn't you show me this yesterday? I said, Johnny, we're trying to cover for him. Mm-hmm. Be honest with you, I didn't know what was going on. We're covering for him. He's like, "Oh, I didn't get on the phone." So I guess they called the Atlanta police or whatever. So and, supposed and to be his job more I don't know anything about it. You know, that's yeah, the last okay. thing I heard. And then all of a sudden, Horrible. an hour later, they do a big old meeting 
at the ring with all the wrestlers, and they did this periodically, you know, to talk about, you know, yeah, like, they would have like a like a team meeting, yeah, where the company's going, or you know, Vince had to say something big, you know. So yeah. we go to the meeting, we're sitting there, and I look at Ric Flair, and Ric Flair's crying, and and I go, Rick, what's going on? And he goes, they're gone. I said, what do you mean they're gone? And I this is before anybody knew anything, and he goes, Daniel, Nancy, and Chris, and I said, what do you mean they're gone? And I, ha- I had to hear it from his mouth. I couldn't hear his, hear that. He said, they're gone. What do you mean they're gone? Because they're dead. It's just now, right now, my heart just dropped again. Mm-hmm. That's what I felt. I was like, and, and Vince hadn't announced it to everybody yet. And I'm sitting there ne- next to everybody, and I just put my head down and was like, oh, mm-hmm. what? Well, are you kidding me? This is a like two years, a year and a half after Eddie died. Yeah. And, you know, I had another friend. This happened to another friend of mine. I was like, what are you talking about? And sure enough, man, I, then all of a sudden, Vince announces it to people and saying, we don't know the circumstances at this time. All we know is that there's been a death and uh, Chris Benoit is no longer with us and his uh, son and his uh, uh, wife are no longer with us either. We don't know the circumstances. We don't know what's going on. So we're taking tonight and making a, making a tribute show to Chris. I pulled Vince. I freaking grabbed him in, in the back and was like, what happened? I don't, what happened? And he just hugged me and I'm, now I'm crying on Vince McMahon's shoulder and I'm like, no, not again, not again, yeah, not again. Yeah, not I'm again, crying man. on it. He's hugging me like, like a child. I mean, he's hugging me like really tight, you know, and I was like, what What the heck? You serious? Yeah, it was interesting because I'd been talking to Brian Gewertz right. and he called me earlier in the day and said, I got to tell you something you're going to love because what I found out afterwards that Bruce Campbell was originally going to be in the show because that show was a funeral for Vince who had just been blown up. That's right. That's right. And they had yeah, Bruce right. Campbell just goes on and on yeah. and from there essentially yeah and then this is uh this is the night of the tribute show and this is uh the opening intro with Vince McMahon I believe right yeah okay all right all right here we go good evening tonight this arena here in Corpus Christi Texas was to have been filled to capacity with enthusiastic WWE fans. Tonight's storyline was to have been the alleged demise of my character, Mr. McMahon. However, in reality, WWE superstar Chris Benoit, his wife Nancy, and their son Daniel are dead. Their bodies were discovered this afternoon in their new suburban Atlanta home. The authorities are undergoing an investigation. We here in the WWE can only offer our condolences to the extended family of Chris Benoit. And the only other thing we can do at this moment is tonight pay tribute to Chris Benoit. We'll offer you some of the most memorable moments in Chris's professional life. And you'll hear tonight comments from his peers, those here, his fellow performers, those here who loved Chris and admired him so much. So tonight will be a three-hour tribute to one of the greatest WWE superstars of all time. Tonight will be a tribute to Chris Benoit. And the final clip, I believe this is Chris Benoit's father, Michael, 
on Nightline. And this clip's about a minute, just under a minute. To those who knew him privately, Chris Benoit also appeared to be a devoted family man. He was a very kind... What, what you saw in the ring was not the Chris Benoit on the outside. Um, he loved to be at home playing with his, his children. That's where he wanted to be. So when Chris's father, Michael, first learned of his son's death, the gruesome details made no sense. He phoned me on Father's Day, which was a week before. Um, and I said, you know, how are you going? What are you doing? And he said, unfortunately, Dad, I'm on the road. It's Father's Day today. I wish I was home with my family. So, a week later, we end up with this tragedy. Yeah, and that was really just to uh, help everybody understand a little bit more um, who really understood only a very one-sided way of looking at, at Chris's death, um, his wife's death and son's death, that maybe there was a little bit more to this than just this one blanket thing that was presented to everybody is as the reasoning behind it and furthermore maybe there's actually even actually there, there there's reasoning that it wasn't him who actually did this specifically because of factual because of facts that are looked within the actual story itself of when you actually break down the story and not in a what a lot of people would consider in a conspiracy theory way type thing going on here it's just very simply for the respect of a justice that seems very unjust for a family and for more so the family who are still alive today and his friends who are still alive today that a lot of those those clips that you were hearing from uh they came from talk is jericho um chris jericho my heart goes out to all of between chris jericho dean malenko chavo guerrero um, all of this in, inner circle of best friends that was along the, along with Chris Benoit, um, I find it very unjust that those people get to go along the rest of their lives and never know what happened to their son and what happened to their best friend and never know what, work ha what happened to their work colleague. All they know is that they're just going to keep wondering and it's just going to keep a conversation going for the rest of their lives. Uh, I have an opinion. Uh, I, I don't want to stray my opinion right now. Michelle, what are your thoughts on this? Um, I mean, it's a touchy it's subject, just, yeah, so no, if we offend really anybody, we're, we apologize. But I, our job here is to be honest, and we're going to be honest. I feel like it's just, it's like, it's really sad when you look at how everything played out that day or whatever. Um, to me, drugging and then killing shows a, a bit of a sign of compassion you don't want that person to go through the complete pain of being strangled or whatever so you give them a drug to kind of knock them out and then you can kind of do whatever but at the same point at the same time sorry I also think it's weird to drug somebody and then strangle them like what was the point of you know unless it's compassion that comes in um and I also think the media being there like being alerted before I think um, because he was such a big name, it's like any kind of celebrity murder, killing, any death. Once that kind of is out there, 
that's the story that's out there and it's going to be really really difficult to dive deeper like this isn't like a biggie tupac murder where it's like you're never going to find the end but i think everything got muddled because of um the attention it got right at the forefront um with yeah with the media being there as, to as see so much like, you mentioned yeah. earlier so much celebrity cases do yeah there's just there leaves that room of not reasonable doubt, but a lot of questions that you're not necessarily going to get a definitive answer for. So I, I think in that respect, um, it'd be nice for people to know. I think it'd be comforting for his parents to know the real truth, what really happened, what was the real cause, you know. But at the same time, we're how many years away or, or like, you know, you know what now. I mean? And time has gone by. People have kind of just come to terms with, okay, well, that's what I heard in the news. So that was the story. I, either way, whatever happened, I, I feel very impartial because then I throw my feelings into the mix and I, that's not a place I want to be. I just feel like it was just a great loss to to the wrestling world because Chris Benoit was a great talent. It was a great loss for uh, his friends, his family, his wife's friends and family, his kids' friends, e e just everybody that was touched by these three individuals. It was just, I, I just think it's just a loss and I think it was just stupid yeah. and unnecessary, right? Like most things are. Yeah. David Benoit as well. Yes, and son his son, his behind. son from a previous marriage. Um, who Chris Chris Jericho actually keeps in very good touch with. This kid looks like a spitting image of his dad. And one thing I'm thankful for is that he's kind of separated himself. Like you don't hear his name in the media. People don't really know who he is unless you know you do your research and stuff like that. And I think um, it's kind of better for him. Nobody wants to be in that jungle. Yeah, you don't want to be no. associated no. with that. I, I guess in this situation, I got to be devil's advocate here for a second because uh, being a family man myself. Uh, the struggles of not being around your family, I get it, that can weigh on you. But um, I definitely don't think drugs came into play in this at all. I don't think the steroid is there. I think the drugs were given, as you said, a sign of compassion. But I unfortunately think that they got it right in the way things went down. And it's unfortunate to think that way because as a wrestler, I won't ever forget his name. I just won't talk about what he did that day. But I'll remember him because he was an amazing wrestler. But unfortunately, when you look at the facts, there are a lot of cases that never get solved. You mentioned yep. Biggie Tupac, O.J. Simpson. Did he kill him? Did he not kill him? Kurt well, Cobain. Kurt Cobain. Like, I mean, well, she did it. This is well, very well, Biggie Tupac. Courtney Love Tupac did it, but in the this, story, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is this is where this is your your Biggie Tupac because of how this guy was such an, in, an inlet in your life. But I'm feeling like the detective from Unsolved. Like it's almost kind of like that. Yeah, yeah. Like, cool. yeah, yeah. Yeah, you may die. You may die of a heart attack at 54 trying to figure it out. Right. But. Um, yeah, just to get to my point here, because I don't want to ramble too too long, but I unfortunately do think he did it. I do think the concussions and the injuries played on him. And I do think that uh, the doctor in Virginia, the head of neurosurgery, I think he got it right. I think the brain was so damaged and so fucked up, I think he went into dementia. He wasn't thinking clearly. And I'm thinking the drugs might have been an effect of coming out of the dementia, but he was so far gone at this point that he did. I mean, there's a lot of things that you scratch your head about. Why, why did they have Xanax in their system? Right. Why was David? Why was the theory that David was strangled after the drugs were given to him? Why were their arms draped across their chest? So why did they have Bibles? Yeah. There was no sign of forced entry. So either Benoit didn't do it, and they all knew their killer, 
or Benoit did it. And that's the unfortunate thing is, is that those are really the only two theories we have to play with because that's all we know. But these are, as much as the cops, as much as we know, police tamper with a lot of stuff. This had nothing to do with police tampering. Whereas, as we've learned over the years, the Biggie Tupac thing did. There was a lot of things the, the LAPD did in that situation mm-hmm. that was a head scratcher. Also, Vegas was a non-existent law force at that time. So there was no way they were going to solve a murder in Vegas. Murders in Vegas right. happen every day. But just to tie back into this, I don't think the uh, uh, GPD, I think the Georgia Police Department, I guess that's what they're, uh, a- APD, sure. Atlanta Police Department, we'll just go with that. The Atlanta Police Department, I don't think there was a need to tamper here with any of this. I think they went in. I think they looked at all the evidence. I think they got it right, unfortunately. And I hate to say that because it breaks my heart because I'm a family man and I can never imagine doing that to my kids. Mm-hmm. But if your mind is so damaged, the mind is a powerful muscle. And as we all know, we only use 10% of it. There's 90% of it as, as people, very few individuals, unless you're Stephen Hawking, you tap into the other percentages of your of your mind. So you're really, you're really only from age, you're trained to think the way your parents think. And then as you get older, you develop your own thoughts and your own theories. And I unfortunately think... That because his mind was so damaged, uh, I think he did do it. Now, do I agree with the WWE in separating themselves? Unfortunately, yes. Because wrestling has had such a bad label for so many years, there's not a surprise that the first reaction of Vince McMahon and his board of directors is damage control. Okay, this is now what's out there. We've got to pull back. Do I think it's unfair that Benoit is not celebrated in the Hall of Fame? Yes. Do I see the reasons why? Yes. Do I think the Hall of Fame should only condone what you did in the squared circle and not your personal life? Hell yeah. Because to go back to what we talked about China, there are drug dealers. There are pimps. There are addicts. There are wife beaters. Jimmy Fly Snooker killed his own wife. I was just about to say Jimmy Snooker. Yeah. Yeah. But now, mind you, he was inducted after. There was adult film stars. So have you, so what? So the Hall of Fame is not a hall of good decision making. Let's get that out there right away. The right. Hall of Fame has made a, a ton of fantastic talents that as kids and adults we all revered and loved, but there's a lot of bad decisions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A lot of horrible decisions. And don't get me wrong, wrestling and doping go hand in hand in the 80s. Vince McMahon wasted a lot of money in an indictment to prove his innocence, but I still think <laughs> he had a hand in all of that. But unfortunately, I see the reasons why you have to diss yourself as damage goal. You're a family program. You cannot celebrate a man who killed his family. And that's that's the point. So I know you love him. I love him. I respect him for his in-rig. And you highlighted well, I, I, I think what, you're going to actually enjoy my, my opinion. What a, great, what a great career that he had spending 20 years. I'm not saying your opinion is going to differ from mine at all. All I'm saying is that i got to play devil's advocate here because as much as it breaks my heart, being a person who goes based off facts and not feelings, I have to say that I unfortunately think on a, on a very bad day, a very, very sick man took his life and his family's life. I, I and it had nothing to do with roid rage or any of that nonsense. I honestly think one too many shots to the head and his brain was damaged. I think it had nothing to do with drugs or roid rage or any of that nonsense. Mm-hmm. I do think he did it. I think he did it because his brain was damaged beyond repair. So, you know, and our condolences as we, as we always do on this show because we are the most Absolutely. sincere. Our condolences to the Benoit family and the friends of Chris Benoit, and all the fans out there who have a hole in their heart. Because he was a talent gone too soon, and I bet you, man, we could have seen another decade more wrestling before he hung it up. And his son would have been 18 years old, and we probably would have seen them at the Hall of Fame this year. 
So definitely our condolences go out to that. And we'll tie it up. Steve, I'll give you another two, three minutes, and then we're going to wrap it up, brother. Absolutely. Um, I, I do definitely agree with you. I agree with, uh, I agree with Chris Jericho. I agree with a lot of people who have said about the Hall of Fame. I, believe with, I, I agree with Sandra, Nancy's sister, who also said the same thing of, like, no, that's, that's not okay. Can't, can't do that. Not with that kind of a legacy behind it. I'm, um, I'm really impartial to the point where I really wanted to also play devil's advocate. And also I really wanted to, um, look at all of the facts of the story that is being presented to me and really understand it for what it was to be able to move forward with it and have a, have a really better understanding than just watching a few videos and just hearing a few things. And, you know, that's, that's pretty much it. So when you get to the place where they actually went as far as to only say that apparently uh, Nancy was only bound before the killing, but didn't say anything about how she was killed, what happened to her, other than she was just drugged. So what does that mean? So what is it? What is so from from a testimony standpoint? What you're telling me is you filled her with a non-lethal dose of drugs and then just left her there, and apparently she just died on her own accord. Um, don't believe that in the slightest. Um, how his son was apparently filled with Xanax, likely before he was he strangled him. I'm like, I don't believe that either. I don't believe that uh, from a man who apparently loved his son so much, and from the fact of we, you actually hear in testimony from uh, friends of his that, uh, sorry, I couldn't find the clip, but uh, a, a clip that I have listened to of, I believe it was Chris Jericho, who actually made mention on the CNN show. You can find it in the CNN show. Trust me, you can look it up. Um, where he talks about Benoit, actually being one of the only, the only guy on the roster that would actually take a flight from where he was at. If he knew he was only a few hours away, he would take the flight home, go see his family for six hours, and then go on a flight back to the venue and get to the arena and go perform a show because he was that kind of consummate professional. I don't believe a man who loved his family as much as that he did and loved everything about wrestling as much as he did and was so devoted to being a genuinely great human being I don't hear any of that and think to myself, this is a man that's actually capable of doing these really unbelievable, and the names of these drugs that to me, I sit there and I go, these are a lot of very similar names to when it's put in that similar situation where you end up finding out later on that you, you start to pick apart these stories like Biggie Tupac and go, is this right? Because this doesn't sound right. A lot of the n obscure names to these drugs that are just leaving <coughs> the family sedated but not in a way that it's killing them in any way, but only leaving them just sedated and then found a way to, to make this all happen into a murder where you did all this and then you managed to walk down and go kill yourself in your lap pull-down machine. Um, from all the attributes of what I've heard about Chris Benoit's person, um, it seems very far-fetched to me that it was a thing that involved him if he did do it. However, I have no proof on this other end. So that's where I'm not, I'm not out here. Ladies and gentlemen, for those of you who are listening, for those of you who think that maybe this is a thing where, no, this is my decision. And I think that this is what happened. I'm not a judge. I'm not a detective. And I don't have any evidence to really back this up other than just what's going on with I, what I read within the story. And it just seems very unplausible to a man's career that unfortunately got tarnished with something that I believe didn't actually happen to him. But however, if it did, then it's very, very simply a, a case of mental illness that a lot of people suffer from. And seriously, it's it's kind of a, more of a wake-up call if you take the story at face value for what that is. Pick up the phone and call someone and let them know what's going on with you or just very simply talk to someone. If that's the case, get yourself a therapist. 
Do what you need to do to move yourself into a better life for yourself mentally. And do what you need to do to stay away from that darkness that has taken so many people down. Chris Cornell, Chester Bennington, like these names of people who just constantly suffer from mental illness that stay quiet and don't tell anybody about it. So please just talk to someone if that's you out there right now. All right. And next week we'll be back with something of a lot more happier subject. But as this was a career profile, this was knocked out of the park. Fantastic job. All the research was done right. And again, we wish everyone out there who was a fan in the family, knew him, touched your life in some aspect, condolences. Yeah, our deepest, deepest condolences. And I guarantee you, him and Eddie Guerrero right now are wrestling in heaven. Oh, yeah. For the... I don't know. HWA. The, For the heaven world, the heavenly the heavenly world, world alliance. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's not bad. I could make a corny joke today because that's nobody's not, going on the list. No, you I made one earlier. Don't start. I, For the for the straight talk panel, I'm the host with the most, George McCoy. I'm going to say peace out on a fantastic episode 45, profiling Chris Benoit, Steve the Animal Mitchell. Everyone, you have an amazing night. And Michelle Rougeau, the voice of reason, who is just being crapped on all the time. <laughs> all right, guys. Night, guys. Take it easy. <laughs> Thank you all so much for tuning in. Catch us every Wednesday at 7.30 on Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, iTunes, and Google Play Music. Also, be sure to follow us on our social media platforms, Facebook and Instagram at Straight Talk Wrestling, and Twitter at underscore Straight Talk. Wrestling!